0: Thanks to everyone for coming along to uh, the sixth and final of our lunchtime concert series today.
1: Uh, Every few months, there's a great concert great in, the in the Supreme, Supreme Court, Court Library. To
0: kick off today, with Daniel McPherson. Now, Daniel is Associate Justice Yara Deaconu's associate.
1: Court staff and legal professionals gather to either listen or play. They're called lyrical lunchtimes. It sounds great in here, under the decorated high dome ceiling in what's been described as the most beautiful room in Melbourne.
2: Um, I, I just think the place drips with history. It's a it's a marvellous
3: building. I, love it. I think the building is wonderful, it's quirky, it's odd, it has to be said it's freezing in winter, but it contains such history. I think it's rather charming.
1: The Trial Division building in the Supreme Court is imposing. All that 19th century stonework and polished cedar panelling narrow corridors, really high ceilings with grand chandeliers and ornate plasterwork. It makes you nervous. And that was exactly the feel they were going for when it was built in 1884. Even the art, mostly portraits of stern looking men in big leather chairs looking down from under their wigs, and the statue of Lady Justice with her sword and scales. The effect of the original building is to communicate the authority even fear of the law. But things have changed a lot in the last few decades, and as the system changes, so too does the art and the architecture. Gradually, this 19th century heritage building is looking and feeling more like it belongs to a 21st century justice system. I'm Greg Muller, this is Gertie's Law.
4: and they shall be heard
5: and they shall be heard the whole truth and nothing but the truth nothing, 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 nothing
0: nothing but the truth I... I was in awe of the Supreme Court. We were in courtroom 12. Carmel
1: Arthur first walked up the steps of the Supreme Court as a victim of crime after her husband was murdered. She had never been involved in the justice system before.
0: Uh, The first impressions were that it was this beautiful, majestic building. I found it really intimidating too. I also found the hierarchy of the court really interesting where the judge would sit, you know, so, you know, completely elevated, and then where the jury would sit Um, which would be at a different level to the judge, but higher than what the defendant would be. I felt that it was a place of reverence. You know, this really beautiful place that I trusted would um, deliver what I needed it to deliver for me.
1: Justice McCauley has been a judge here for almost 10 years. When I invite people to come into this building and we
6: just walk down the corridors and you see those lovely long corridors with the, the lamps and the red carpet and the white walls, they are just taken by the ambience. And you know, if you take people into the library, you just see their sense of awe. And it's a good thing not to lose that sense of awe about this building. But, look, modern architecture uh, reflects different priorities, I think, to what there was 140 years ago now. You look at the modern buildings and it's all about space and light and welcome. You look at this building, it's um, more closed and dark and austere and I think was designed to ensure people sensed a degree of I'm in a place of
2: authority here and I I better abide by it. Criminal judge, justice champion. Court architecture is really important because it's symbolic and you can see the power and the symbolism of this court when you walk into the courtroom and just look at what's around you. There's an enormous amount of history that that sort of ekes out of the walls at you. Uh, The building
4: is a beautiful piece of heritage architecture that reflects the notions of the relationship between built structures and justice that applied in the 19th century, where fear was an important emotion. That's Principal Judge of the Common Law Division, Justice Dixon. This court has a series of small doorways that create the impression of moving in through a, a a doorway into an inaccessible space where you get dealt with. Once you're in a courtroom, you are met with architectural design that, if you look at it for a moment, is very similar to that of a church. Everything takes place at a different level. The judge is up at a particular level, the witnesses are at a different level, the is at a different level. And if you look at the arrangement of a church, you see a very similar use of different entry points of different levels, all designed to reinforce respect for authority and for authoritative forces. And the basic Principle that was being employed there was to, to draw the power of the church and the power of religion to ensure that people behaved properly in courts. They told the truth and the disputes to be resolved or the criminal charges to be determined uh, could be done so in a, in a more uh, efficient way. A lot of that 19th century appeal to control through uh, religion and belief doesn't work anymore that that doesn't carry a great deal of weight although courts have recognized for a long time that um, people don't stand in the witness box in fear of, of eternal damnation if they lie so that there are different techniques for working out where the truth lies
1: Is it good to be fearful if you're here?
4: Uh, yes. I'm not sure that fear is the correct um, emotion that I'd go for now. It's, you certainly don't want to be relaxed and comfortable and feel that you can get away with things. And I think that modern architecture actually doesn't permit that kind of response to it. But there is a, a need for the occasion to be represented as being one of particular Uh, Importance, uh, where it is important that you do the right, you do the right thing.
1: Justice Macaulay again.
6: I think people should feel a degree of anxiety and nervousness in any courtroom. It's a, it's serious business, and if people feel that they can take or leave the authority of the court as they choose, then the task of the court is made that much more difficult. So I think casualness over-familiarity between the bench and practitioners and witnesses can, in a sense, break down the serious function that the court is trying to perform, and that is to ascertain forensically what happened. So we want the tools, and in part the uh, aura of the court is one of those tools with which to try and get to the best approximation of truth that we can. Should you
2: be scared if you're in front of the Supreme Court? Um, <laughs> I've thought about this a lot and uh, and uh, my response to that, and it probably differs from a lot of people, but my response is, yeah, I, I want to be shaking the knees when I walk into the Supreme Court. Justice champion. I want, I want the, uh, the feeling to be momentous. It's difficult because I want it to be welcoming for the public to come in and to understand what justice is doing. But we're dealing with really important cases, really big cases. I know as a, as a barrister, whenever I walked into the Supreme Court, you know, you get this sense of um, awe as you walked in and you would start to shake at the knees. That's what, oh, I want that to happen. Oh, yeah. I don't want people to feel scared, but I want people to understand that this is really serious business. Of that, there's no doubt. And there's no confusion either as to who's in charge.
1: In the main criminal courtrooms, the judge's dominance is accentuated by a grand, elevated wooden canopy. Behind the judge is the coat of arms of the United Kingdom, the royal arms, the one with the lion and the unicorn. And if you look around, there's hints to how long these courtrooms have been used. For example, the knock at the start of each court session comes from a little wooden hammer hanging from a piece of string at the judge's entrance. And there's hundreds of small indentations in the wood panelling from where it's been banged in the same place for more than 130 years. It's quite an intimidating building to come into. Yep. Is that as it should be? Well, that's certainly why it was built the way it was. Appeal court judge, Justice Whelan. The older the courtrooms you go into, the more intimidating
6: they are. And that was the sort of 19th century way. Uh, if you The more modern ones you go into, the benches get lower and lower and the whole
1: atmosphere becomes more congenial, I suppose. Some people who have worked here a while develop a love-hate relationship with this building. Justice Lex Lazary.
2: Oh, a bit of both. Um, a bit of both. I mean, I, I love the Fourth Court in Melbourne, I've sat in there a lot, I've appeared in there a lot. I think that court is primarily imposing. Um, I think that's a benefit. I don't think people... You know, I think when you're dealing with serious crime, uh, welcoming is less important than imposing and serious. And I, the courts do serious business. The atmosphere should be serious. I know from the point of view of um, victims and, and other civilians who come to the court, that can be a problem. But I think we do serious work. We should sit in circumstances that emphasise the seriousness of what we do. Chief Justice Anne Ferguson.
3: Um, I don't think you should be scared no matter that it is the Supreme Court building. You should be coming here as a place where you're going to, if you're in the case yourself as a party, you're going to get a fair hearing and justice is going to be delivered. I, I don't want people to associate that with a fear of that. I think that your authority and your respect is earned by what you say and do, not how you appear or what title you have, and not the physical environment that you're working in. The architecture of this, if you go into the courtrooms, is very hierarchical, so the judge is always positioned in the highest position in the courtroom. That's not always appropriate any longer in our society to have that hierarchical architecture in the more modern courts you don't get it in the same way the judge is still usually slightly elevated but not to the extent that you have in this court and there's a practical reason for having some elevation so the judge can see what's going in the whole of the courtroom Um, but as I understand it the architecture of this court was very much everybody had a position and it was a hierarchical position
1: The trial building at the Supreme Court was completed in 1884, at the height of the gold rush. Indeed, previously on this site were vaults in which miners would come into town and store their bullion. Those vaults are now part of the underground cells. More on those later. Architectural historians describe this style as academic classical. In a recently published book on the Supreme Court called Judging for the People, the building is described like this.
3: The columns that support the dome in the courtyard speak of Greek democracy and Roman law. It's derivative of other great legal temples and has echoes of the Old Bailey and the four courts in Dublin. Yet it is unique to Melbourne. A reminder of that unparalleled decade of growth and excess, the land boom era of the 1880s.
1: So how did the Supreme Court end up looking the way it does? Well, it
3: was
7: complicated. Uh,
1: like everything about this place, it was complicated. Joanne Boyd is the archives manager Sighted. at the Supreme Court.
7: They, so they decided on this inner town, and it's great because it's on a, on a hill, it's on a high point. If you think the buildings, everything falls away, you go down Lonsdale Street and down things. So here we are up on the hill. And then they have this... Uh, they re- Eventually they have a competition to um, design the building. So they advertise that in the Government Gazette. So then they decided... Um, I think they always decided it had to be stone. It wasn't going to be brick. And the funny thing in Melbourne is that we've got more bluestone. The sandstone that, that of this building is actually was imported from Tassie. And there's a stone inquiry during the building of this building um, because the stone wasn't right and it, importing it from Tassie and I think the quarry ran out and a whole range of things. Anyway, but the design competition, well, that's a doozy, isn't
8: it? It is. So... The design of public buildings was decided by a competition and the entries that they got back were judged anonymously.
1: Court archivist Nicole Lithgow.
8: However, there was one in particular that was um, stood out. It was in the uh, academic classical style. It was the design that actually won and a judge in the competition was a guy by the name of A.E. Johnson. He worked for the public works department. The problem was that A.E. Johnson was very close associates with a gentleman by the name of Smith who had put in the design. So ultimately Johnson chose his own design.
7: When it came out it was really big news because the Public Works Department was already in strife at that stage for being corrupt or, you know, awarding building projects to their mates and things like that. So
8: there was, uh, it caused such kerfuffle that there was, in 1873, a royal commission to inquire into the system adopted by the Public Works Department in reference to contracts and the execution of public works and generally to report on the department itself. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a fairly serious set of allegations, however... Mm -hmm. This is the building that we got.
1: So, in 2019, does this court still work, Justice Champion?
2: The basic architecture remains the same and is really important. I wouldn't try and change the structure of the courtroom, the judge's bench, the dock, the jury box, the barristers, the public. I think that formula is is tried and tested. I wouldn't I wouldn't change that formula, but it needs updating to the modern modern
3: era. I think the building is wonderful, it's quirky, it's odd, it has to be said it's freezing in winter. Criminal judge Justice Taylor. But it contains such history Um, and although it's not a modern court in the sense of um, there are rooms off corridors and you have to walk miles, um, I think it's rather charming.
5: One gets a very great sense
2: of history I think if you walk through the stone corridors. I just think the place drips with history, um, and I think it's a
1: it's a marvellous building. I I love it. Appeal court judge Justice Priest. This room we're
2: sitting in, you know, look look around. Again, you get a sense of history
9: and tradition. I think that's what you, uh, uh, you you ignore the scouring mice. <laughs>
5: real use here. Just be careful of the stairs. Um, they're very small. Um, it's not too bad. They've never got the lights and everything really on. I'll open it up. Um, but yeah, just be very careful coming down, okay? Don't hurt yourself. And you turn the lights
1: off. There's one area in this court which is often talked about, but rarely seen. The underground cells or dungeons. Indeed, it took me a few months of asking before tip staff Stephen Hare agreed to take me down.
5: So they used to bring their prisoners down here. They'd bring them in, lock them up. You'd have something like 15 to a cell. So you imagine if you've got 15 people, they'd probably be shackled. The staff are here with these guys, of course, which in the conditions are pretty bad. There's no air conditioning, there's no heating. They're it
1: must have been a very unpleasant rain. place. It's dark, it's dingy, and back then, with the
5: smell of sewage and gas. There's no natural lighting, of course. So they would have used gas. There's no sewerage, there's no running water. It's pretty ordinary conditions. Ock health and safety wasn't a big feature in those days. There's some photographs on the glass there of different people that have been occupying the cells at different times. There's Frank Deeming. Deeming was found guilty of killing his wife in Windsor in 1891. He was hung in 1892. There's Squizzy Taylor there. Squizzy was shot in uh, 1927, but before that he had a bit of a criminal history. He would have been down there at different times. There's also Frances Knorr. a picture of her. She was executed after being convicted of baby farming. Uh, Illegitimate children would often be given to single women or couples who would promise to look after them in return for cash. Uh, They then would sometimes abandon or kill the children. Numerous infants were found buried in the gardens of two houses that Francis had rented. She went to the gallows in 1894. She was only 23. And speaking of the gallows, there's an image there of a hangman, William Walker. In 1893, Francis Knorr was condemned to death. Walker's wife threatened to leave him if he executed a woman. And nine days before Knorr was due to hang, Walker was found dead. He'd cut his own throat. Uh, when your time came to go to court you'd be brought out of the cells and there used to be uh, spigots in the wall here where prisoners if they were playing up uh, could be restrained or if you were really being a bad boy they'd put this around your waist that's an original belt and there's a little metal ring on the back and they'd attach you to the wall so that you couldn't play up too much and restrain you until you're ready to go. The constable will come down and say you're ready to appear in court. They'd bring you down here. This is what they call prisoner's walk. So if you're brought down here ready to go to court, they'd stop you here at the entrance to the dock and there's a very steep, narrow little winding staircase here you'd be stuck here with your uh, constable, you're probably in shackles and you can see as they're talking way upstairs you might be standing here for some time and you'll notice on the wall here that they've either used their shackles or whatever metal object they've been restrained with to carve their initials or different uh, comments they might have made
1: And while the offenders were scratching their name in the stone at the entrance to the narrow spiral staircase which leads to the dock in Court 4, upstairs in the courtroom, the journalists were busy doing the same thing, in the press boxes.
4: Barry Richards, the age, 1960. Bowen, ABC,
3: 1990.
5: CJ
1: Dow, the Argus.
5: Jade Vincent, 9 News. Gerard,
1: 1938. It's a tradition which goes on today.
7: Well, That's, it's it's mainly it's the the classic uh, I was here type idea. So you, you're getting journalists and sometimes they're owning up to which um, company or paper or whatever, so there is the Argus. It's usually the
8: their name and their publication and then a year.
1: There's <laughs> just a history of court reporters for 100 years.
8: That's yeah. right. That's right. And they got bored because... <laughs> and God knows it can be boring during a trial. It so. can be boring, so they would scratch their names in.
2: The Runt chief star 1933 45 snake tyrone
8: it no. becomes part of the living history of of the court and it becomes a very interesting part of it and it becomes just part of the life and breath of the court itself so it would be a shame to remove it it's these rooms these walls have seen a lot of very interesting things and i think it's a shame to remove all evidence of that
1: And it's not only the journalists. In the upstairs public gallery of one of the main criminal courts, supporters of the accused are on one side.
6: Leon is innocent.
0: Leon is amazing, we love him.
1: And on the other side. Leon is a Leon is a a
4: Leon is a
6: loser.
1: That's loser with a Z. Imagine the tension in the court that day. Both camps eyeing each other off across the room, scratching away. Also in court four, the main criminal court, Someone's carved an accurate and detailed handgun into the wood. A lot of care's gone into this. Whoever did it knew their way around a gun, that's for sure. And it would have taken them a while. There's got to be a story behind that. Perhaps the most distinctive feature from the outside is the dome. This sits above the library.
0: I'm Sue Reynolds and I'm a library historian and my PhD was on the Library of the Supreme Court of Victoria.
1: Okay, so let's go in.
0: (laughs) All right, let's go in. We've been through security and we've crossed the carriageway and we're entering the library through the doors marked Library, Private, No Admittance. And
1: so why does it say
0: that? Well, it says that because originally only people admitted to practice law in the colony of Victoria who paid their admission fees to the library were allowed to use this library. When did it open to the public? Um, Slowly over the years and really only in the uh, 20th century and the 21st century. So originally you had to ask permission to come in. Now you can just come in and staff will say just have a look.
1: Justice Redmond Barry loved his libraries. He was instrumental in setting up the Melbourne Public Library, the Carlton Library, Parliamentary Library and the Law Library here at the Supreme Court.
0: Well we're entering the most beautiful room in Melbourne as the uh, former late Chief Justice John Harbour Phillips said when uh, the library was refurbished in 1999 and so we're in a big circular space but it's under an internal dome, a false dome so the dome you can see from outside is not the dome that we're looking up at now and in between the external dome and the internal dome are various rooms and things going on up there.
1: Now, just to our left, there's a a sign of all the librarians here since 1866.
0: Yes, 1866 is what the board says, but in fact, John Shutt was appointed in 1865. Um, So it's a little discrepancy there. He was a librarian for 54 years, and uh, there's only been six librarians because all of them Served for a very long time, except perhaps Mrs. Goodwin, uh, who was only the librarian for six years. Cynthia. Uh, Cynthia, yes, and when she stepped down, they made a new rule that said only a man, underlined, of the law was to be the librarian.
1: I wonder what Cynthia's time here would have been like.
0: Well, it's a little bit hard to know because the minute book uh, has been, pages have been taken out over the argument, over her appointment.
1: All around this circular building are portraits, all looking at you when you stand in the middle, mostly men with big beards and wigs in leather armchairs.
0: Yes, well most of the portraits are chief justices from the Supreme Court of Victoria or the colony of Victoria as it was originally. They started with the portrait of uh, Sir William Beckett which was donated to the old Supreme Court by a member of Parliament who wanted to honour the judges as he had seen in England.
1: Now as you walk in, almost directly in front, is the largest portrait, who's that?
0: That is uh, the very long-serving librarian John Shutt And he, you can see, he's resting his hand on a pile of books. He was very well regarded, he was very learned. And next to
1: that portrait is one which stands out equally, actually, for different reasons.
0: Yes, that's the portrait of the former Chief Justice Marilyn Warren. Uh, Perhaps one of the reasons is because she was the first female Chief Justice. Uh, She is dressed in civil robes without a wig. She's looking straight out and it's unframed. So one other portrait of real note is of William Barrack, who was a leader of the Wurundjeri people in uh, Victoria. Chief Justice Warren asked that this portrait uh, be placed in the library. So an image from a 19th century painting, a digital image was made, and that's what you see here framed, just as it would have looked, though, um, in a very elaborate 19th century-type frame.
1: And despite this library being only 135 years old, there are books here which date back to the Middle Ages.
0: One of the display cases has got the oldest book in the library. It's called Statham's Abridgement. It's 1490, so it was printed in the very early days of printing. What are some of the other ones? There's 50 16th and 17th century books. One in particular is called Cowell's The Interpreter and all copies of that book were ordered to be burned in England because it was a list of definitions and the king uh, didn't agree with the definition of king or parliament or prerogative but we have a copy here in this library. There's one that has been described as the filthiest book ever printed and that book is uh, Petronius. And there's a copy here in this library.
1: Can I ask you why it's the filthiest book? <laughs>
0: um, it, oh, I think there's a lot of sexual references and that that kind of thing. Yeah, it's just hidden away here. In the room that's called the Classics Room are some books that are not law books. Um, and I think they were sort of imposed on the colonies by the supplier in England. And so we've got the history of wine, the history of magic, young Ladies' handbook at a time held by the library at a time when young ladies couldn't come to the library because they couldn't study law, so they couldn't be admitted to practice. There's fairy mythology, which has the first use of the word leprechaun. My favourite is one called The Lobster, written by Thomas Huxley, who was Aldous Huxley's uncle. But at the front of that book it says you should read it with a lobster in your hand. But
1: throughout this library, and indeed the entire court, are rows and rows of leather-bound books. So what are they?
0: Well... The original books were to support uh, legal practice in the colony, to support legal practice but also to provide the textbooks that were required for the examinations before there was a university course in law. and Barry contended that they were all law books and books either side of the law, so history, literature, natural science, mechanical arts. So it's very eclectic and Barry actually justified legal practitioners having wide-ranging books to read, because nothing is beyond what a lawyer should know.
1: So if we were to pull one of the books off, now I understand there's a seal on them, on all oh the books?
0: Yes, yes, on the uh, front of each book is stamped the motto of the library, which is Nolumis Ledger's Angliae Mutari, and that motto means we don't want to change the laws of England. That motto comes from the 13th century where the barons and the uh, king were arguing over the powers of the king and the king said a similar statement in a much longer document.
1: So that's stamped on every book here. Whose decision was that?
0: Uh Reverend Barry's. Right, so we'll go up into the more modern bit. So where we're going is up into this space between the internal dome and the external dome which has been used for many different things over the years. Toilets were a big feature when the courts were built in the 19th century and this library was known for good sanitation then and now we're now inside the dome one of the Modern reading rooms that was created. And we can go up further where there are little porthole windows if you want to go up there. Sure. So
1: what was this area before it was renovated?
0: It was used to sequester juries. So up until the 1960s when female jurors were allowed to be jurors, (laughs) uh, the male jurors were accommodated here in beds. And you were only excused from uh, being on the jury if you had a heart condition because there were 67 steps. (laughs) So, we're now up higher and you've got lovely views out these porthole windows.
1: And this is all open to the public, this whole
9: area?
0: Yes. This is like a secret. People don't come up here. Um.
1: There's two main sculptures here, two watching women of the court, and better than anyone, they show how much justice has changed in a hundred years. There's Gertie, of course, or Lady Justice, up high, looking over the main entrance, in one hand clutching the scales of justice, and in the other hand, a sword. Then there's Louisa. Hey.
10: Clive! Hey, how are you going? Good, good, good to yeah, see nice you. Nice to see you again.
1: In 2009, sculptor Clive Murray-White had a visitor uh, to his Gippsland Street, studio.
10: I work out in the, basically out in the bush with a little cover over me, large
1: lump of marble on the trailer. And Clive was asked to provide a sculpture for the newly renovated courtyard. The area was being used as a car park for judges and the decision was made to turn it into public uh, space.
10: Well, actually it, it was initiated by the uh, Justice Osborne, whose wife had told him to have a relaxing time after a difficult case in sale. And she'd suggested bring him round to my studio, give him a cup of tea and, and he sees the sculpture and he says the judges had decided to make that courtyard in the, in the back and they thought that they wanted a sculpture and he saw uh, Louisa uh, and said that's that's what we want for our courtyard. How they explained it was that they would made this courtyard because uh, the court was a stressful place for people who had to visit it and I kind of thought well it would be nice to have the head set in a kind of seating way so that People who were being a bit stressed could sit and had a little friend with them. Justice
1: Osborne remembers it well.
9: Uh, Well, the courtyard was a cobbled courtyard and was used as a judge's car park. And we created an attractive and calm space, but it didn't have a particular feature or focus. Uh,
10: That that was the sort of germ of the idea that the sculpture went out to do a job of helping calm people. I often like the sculptures to do jobs. A functional role for the work? Functional role uh, and very practical. So, you know, you could sit there. uh, There was this rather nice marble girl. It gets gets finer and finer and finer. Um, But this idea that uh, a sculpture can do those sorts of things for people, I mean, in truth, you can also touch it. Very few people actually get uh, the opportunity to touch a marble sculpture. And the nice thing about certain surfaces in marble is they're almost like as uh, smooth as a baby's bottom. Um, and that tactile experience has an effect on people too. And I mean, if you can stroke something, it's a calming it can be a calming uh, experience. You've well, don't wreck this. Um. Um, by the time they uh, launched it, whoever gave the opening speech managed to say that they had managed to drag justice down from the uh, on high. You know how the justice is usually stuck up on the top of a building with a blindfold sword and the um, scales of justice. And by the time they opened it, they had kind of seen that they had actually brought justice down to the people's level, and she was serving people at their level and not an uh, authoritarian uh, symbol. Uh, And I liked that a lot.
9: And uh, the Chief Justice christened it Louisa as Justicia, that is as the female embodiment of justice. And she sits there, she sits down at ground level so that people relate to her directly rather than looking up at her above the the doorway.
10: It becomes a focus for a thought that the Supreme Court judges had, which is uh, humanitarian rather than some of the perceptions that we have of the law as being sort of remote and hard. This was a beautiful idea.
9: Uh, she also reflects an internal figure in the sense that it's a contemplative figure. It's not a figure confronting the world, it's, it's a figure reflecting on the world around it. It's, it's not some 19th century copy or... Copy of a classical figure. It's a modern depiction of uh, a complex-thinking female. And remember,
1: we heard in episode one that it remains a mystery how Gertie got her name, but we do know who Louisa is.
10: I mean, Louisa is, is a real person. It was very funny. I think I told Louisa that she, she was in the court and she, she thought that she was never very law abiding.
1: She's going to end up in the Supreme Court one way or the other. That's right.
10: She said that, yes. But,
1: yeah. What do you want people to get from it?
10: Oh, look, I think uh, in the simplest thing, and it's a very unpopular answer for artists these days, is a touch of beauty in their lives. Yeah, artists tend to try too hard to be ugly and confrontational. I think um, I like to put a bit of beauty into people's lives. and um, But yeah, a touch of beauty will do.
1: Gertie's Law is produced by the Supreme Court of Victoria. Please rate and review if your podcast app allows. And a reminder, we're preparing an episode where we'd like you to send in a question for a judge. So if there's a burning question you want to put to a Supreme Court judge, send them either as a text or, even better, as an audio file to gertie at subcourt.vic.gov.au.